0: Welcome to Parallel Church, one church in five physical locations, so let's welcome everyone that's joining us this morning from Tabor, Claire's Home, Okotoks, Lloyd Minster, welcome Lethbridge, welcome all of you joining us online wherever you guys are watching from around the world, welcome to all of you. Welcome to part two of our series we've entitled Rethink. And yes, the subtitle is Deconstructing Modern Christianity. And if you weren't here last Sunday and you didn't hear last Sunday's message, I'd highly encourage you to go back. Uh, you can find it on YouTube or on our website and, and go back and listen to that message because that message really does set a foundation for what we're talking about in this series. But why are we, why are we doing this series and in particular, why are we talking about deconstructing modern Christianity? Because I mean that's that's a kind of a it's a trendy term right now, deconstructing faith. There's a lot we see in the news, and you know big name celebrities deconstructing their faith. And it's become we have friends, maybe you know somebody who says, I'm deconstructing or I deconstructed my faith. So why are we why are we talking about and I think because we hear that, I think in church world especially, we we get a bad connotation when we hear the word deconstructing. Like someone's deconstructing their faith. Oh no, it's it's falling apart, and it's always negative. But can I just say that there's sometimes there's some times when we need to deconstruct. Anybody else have a time where you thought one way, maybe about finances, and then you deconstruct your current thought and your mindset, and you learned something new. And because you learned something new, you had a breakthrough. Or anybody, maybe in your health, you thought one way and then all of a sudden you deconstructed a certain activity or a certain way that you're doing things and began to rethink some things and, and had a breakthrough. Or maybe in relationships or marriages, you had this idea or this, this ingrained thinking when you're growing up that this is how a husband's supposed to be, this is how a wife's supposed to be, and then you deconstructed some of those preconceived ideas and learned how to do it better. Anybody else? I'm putting all my limbs up for all those things. So sometimes deconstruction is important. And we're talking about deconstructing modern Christianity. And and the reason why we're doing this series, if we want to know why, is because over the last five months of my sabbatical, and all I grew increasingly dissatisfied with the the fruit of the modern-day Big C Church. When I say Big C Church, I mean the global representation of, of Christianity on the planet. And I, I grew increasingly dissatisfied with the, re, the fruit, the results, and, and especially in comparison to the results that I see in the book of Acts. When I see the fruit, the results that, that 11 men starting in Jerusalem in an upper room had over a short period of time, Uh, on on the then-known world, without technology, without all of the resources we have today, I look at that and I go, man, if they could do it, how come we're not seeing the same thing? And maybe the reason why we're not seeing the same fruit as they did is because maybe we're thinking differently than they did, or maybe our understanding of our faith today is different than an understanding of how we do church and how we are Christians, what a Christian is. Maybe it's different. Especially if you were to pull the world today, come on! If you were to pull the world, you you, uh, you don't have to pull the world. You can just pull your friends, yeah. right? And your friends find out you're a Christian. Is the response positive or negative? Most of the time, it's like you're a what? Did you know we read it last week that if you were to state you were a Christian in the first century, it says they had favor with all the people. That it was embraced, that it was they were celebrated, and I'm going. That's different, isn't that different enough? Maybe we have to rethink some things. Last week we started rethinking, in particular about this verse, and, and one word in this verse in Matthew 16. It's a, it's quoting Matthew's quoting Jesus. Jesus is talk having discussion with his disciples. He just asked them, hey, who do you guys think I am? Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're, you're the Son of God. And then Jesus' response to Peter is, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Did you know, and if you are here last week, you know this already? If you weren't, go back, watch, pay attention to this. But the word church is not the word that Jesus used. Jesus did not say, I will build my church. That word is mistranslated. And it wasn't mistranslated by accident. We learned this last week. It was translated church on purpose. In fact, people were killed for trying to translate it the proper way. In the right word. That word, just that word. People were martyred because they tried to translate it accurately. Jesus didn't say, I will build my church. In fact, it probably shocked his disciples that Jesus, a rabbi, the son of God, the Messiah, a religious leader, didn't say, I will build my synagogue. He didn't say, I will build my temple. I will build my tabernacle. He didn't say, I will build my, my, you know, Global empire of synagogues or. Ta- he didn't say that at all. Jesus said, "I will build. This is the word that He used. He says, "I will build my ecclesia." Ecclesia is the exact word Jesus used. It was a Greek word. It was something that's very common. It wasn't a religious word. It, it was a very it was a secular word common to the Greeks. The Romans used it. The Roman Empire used this word. It, it simply translated, mean, meant a social political gathering of citizens who were called together to attend to the concerns of their city. So watch. Jesus didn't say, I will build my synagogue. I will build my temple. He didn't say, I will build my church. Which, if you were to look at the Oxford Dictionary definition of of church, it's a building that Christians gather and worship in. Jesus didn't say, synagogue, temple, church. In other words, he didn't say, I will build my static institution of which we gather at, at a location at a specific time led by a clergy. He didn't say, I will build that. He said, I will build my ecclesia, my social political gathering of citizens who were called together to attend to the concerns of the city. In, in Greek and Roman culture, an ecclesia would be like, I will build my city council. <laughs> right? Because that's what an ecclesia was. It was the city council, a group of citizens gathering together to meet to discuss the concerns and take care of the concerns of the city, he could have said, "I will build my senate, or I will build my legislature, gathering of citizens." And the disciples probably were curious, and they kind of looked and like, "What do you mean, ecclesia? You're going to build, you're going to build an ecclesia, a senate, a city council? What, what do you mean?" And then Jesus went on to describe because the Romans had this. And ecclesia, a common term for them, was convitus, which was a gathering of two or three Romans about the, could meet about the concerns of the empire and with the authority of the empire and of Caesar. And then Jesus, right after he says, I'll build my ecclesia, he says, and wherever two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst. So we learned this last week, and we deconstructed some of that thinking, and we're saying, okay, If the ecclesia, or if the church, Jesus didn't say, I'll build my static institution or organization. Jesus said, I will build a buildingless, mobile, people movement designed to operate 24 7 in the marketplace for the purpose of impacting everybody and everything. That's what he said. And the early church believed him. And the early church did exactly that. And the results they got is proof in the pudding that. Jesus chose the right strategy, but here we are, thousands of years later, and we are more familiar with church, the static institution. We're more familiar with, with the large gatherings, and we go to, and we our our public expression of worship is we go to a building, just like this. Come on, we're here right now, and we go at a certain time, a certain place. We gather together just like this to listen to a preacher and Jesus didn't want, that wasn't his design his design was something different, two or threes, that two or three had the same power and authority of the king come, come on two or three now Paul, who grew up in the static institution, he was formerly Saul of Tarsus uh, uh, widely known and high-ranking Pharisee who some scholars believe that that Paul or or Saul of Tarsus was being promoted to the place where he was going to one day become the high priest overseeing all of the Pharisees in the nation of Israel. Paul wrote this when he got converted. He wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, and he gave some, Jesus gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is quoted often, especially in charismatic churches. Uh, This is quoted often, this, this verse. Now watch, if we read this verse through the filter of understanding church, synagogue, temple, we can read it this way that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers for the overseeing of the saints, for the work of the ministry within the institution. So that we can build bigger churches. That's how we'd read it. If you read this verse through the way that Jesus intended to be read, where I will build my ecclesia, a buildingless people movement in the, in the marketplace, you'll read it differently than you're saying... He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping. That means skill developed of the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay, so what does ministry mean? Well, the the Greek word for ministry here is actually the word uh, diakonos. diakonos. It means it's servant or a minister. It's usage would be for like, this is what you, a diakonos would be a waiter, a waitress, uh, a servant. Anyone who performs any service or administrator. So he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to equip people to wait on others, to serve others. I'm going to create a, a, a ministry of service and equip you for that. So here becomes the, the next question, is where is that service? Where is that ministry? Because if we, if we understand, you know, church, static institution it would, we would assume that all of that ministry happens in the church. And Come on, I've, I've grown up thinking that, that ministry. I'm called to ministry. I felt called to ministry. So guess what? I did all of my ministry, all of my service in the church. I'm called to ministry. We think it's work within the church. But that's not what Paul necessarily meant, that the work of service And from the early church, and I'll show you this. I'll show you from Paul's ministry how Paul had to learn this himself. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is is after Paul's uh, great conversion. In Acts chapter 9, where he was a ranking Pharisee on the way to to actually persecute Christians and to kind of put out that whole movement. Jesus interrupted him on that journey and he got radically in encounter with God, a radical encounter with God. He ended up spending three years, is what we read, three years with Peter and John and the disciples learning and being taught how, how to be a Christian. And then in Acts 13 the christians are gathered together and they they're praying and in the midst of that prayer it says that they felt and they laid hands on paul and barnabas and they sent paul out and his first missionary journey in fact my bible says is paul's first missionary journey is in acts 13 and paul gets sent out now now watch this in acts 13 verse 48 it says when when the gentiles heard this and 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 this is in uh, Poseidon, Antioch, by the way. This it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Okay, now this is great success. Paul's having great success. In fact, when I read the book of Acts, I become I've talked about this, I become very envious of Of the results, and that they got results everywhere. And everywhere, Paul went and preached. Great and tremendous results. It's amazing. Then you read the next verse, and I've always highlighted the results. The next verse, verse 50 says, But, that's a big word, the Jewish leaders incited God fearing women of high standing because they wanted to get things done. (laughs) And the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and, and expelled them from the region. Okay, so Paul goes and preaches in Poseidon, Antioch, and has great results, and many are believing, and all of a sudden, the Jews rise up, and they begin to begin to persecute them, because he's a threatening their static institution, and so they begin to, they begin to persecute him. And I'm, I'm like, well, that's not a big surprise. Jesus taught his disciples to expect persecution. It's going to come. You're going to suffer for my name's sake, he said. So persecution, I've always read that, and I was like, yeah, yeah, they, they got persecuted. Yeah. And you feel for them and going, I mean, there's one time that Paul got beat up so bad and left for dead. Stoned left for dead, not recreationally. Rocks. (laughs) He got stoned left for dead outside the city. You know what Paul did? Paul got up and went back into the city. And I was like, man, that dude's built different than me. I'd be like, peace out. Like, I'm out of here. Right? I I mean, Paul went back in the city, started preaching again. Uh, this guy's built different. But what caught my attention in this verse, not the persecution, what caught my attention is that he was they were expelled from the region. Not just from the city, from the region. They got expelled, they got removed. Which I looked at and I was like, okay, they got persecuted, but they got expelled from the region. That's next level. And they, they were unable to do ministry there. They left a few believers and had to move on. And we see... Acts you know, 14, 15, 16, Paul's doing the same same results. Same things happen. In fact, in Acts 17, he comes to Thessalonica, and the same thing happens. He preaches, a bunch of, of people get saved, there's great things that are happening, and then all of a sudden persecution rises up, and then verse 10 says, as, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Acts 17, what, what happens? In the middle of the night, the believers that are there have to create an escape in the middle of the night so that nobody sees them. Paul is again expelled from a city, expelled from a region. And this seems to be the trend. Wherever he goes, he preaches, people get saved, persecution rises up, and he gets kicked out of the region. And then something shifts, and Paul changes his strategy. In fact, in fact, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. When he started his ministry, he, he started his ministry. You can see it in, the, in Acts 13. He started his ministry under the identity of Saul of Tarsus. And his habit was to first go into the synagogue. Well, of course, when Saul of Tarsus walks into any synagogue in, in the nation of Israel, any synagogue, he goes with a reputation. He was a high-ranking Pharisee from Jerusalem. And he walks in with that title, He walks in with authority, and he begins to speak in the synagogue. They're listening, and some of them get saved because this is Saul of Tarsus. They're listening, but also some begin, after he speaks for a while, some begin to rise up and going, wait a second. That's countering the law. That's countering what we're preaching. You're preaching against our institution. Hold up, and they begin to persecute him. They send him out, and then all of a sudden, he changes his name from Saul. That's a good Jewish name from Saul. To Paul, that's a good Roman name. And he goes from being Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, to all of a sudden he goes to Paul. And watch what he does and what his strategy changes. In Acts 18, it says, After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and was recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who's the emperor of the time, had ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Okay, now watch. Paul initially, Saul of Tarsus initially would walk into a city and he would he would preach from the pulpit of the synagogue with the authority of a religious leader, with a persona of a religious leader. And here, all of a sudden, he changes. In Corinth, he changes his persona, and he begins to work. Look at this. He begins to work as Paul, a Roman citizen, a tent maker in the community. So what happens? What happens is all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people get saved, and the same things happen. A bunch of people get saved. A great movement happens, and the Jews rise up in the exact same way to persecute him. And Paul's thinking, here we go again, again. Now I'm getting booted out of here. But watch what happens in this trial. Acts 18, it says this, verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Gallio was the Roman proconsul. Proconsul, like Pilate, was a proconsul, which means the Roman appointed authority over the region, okay? He's the chief, he's the head of the region. When Gallio's uh, proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. What Gallio should have done, what every other proconsul had done, what Pilate had done see, Pilate didn't find Jesus guilty. Pilate appeased the Jewish crowd because Pilate's job as proconsul was to keep peace in the region. And if there's a whole bunch of worked up Jews that could create riots and problems, then I, he will do whatever. If it t- means killing one man, okay, we'll kill one man to appease that crowd and we have peace in the region. That's why Pilate ki- you know, had Jesus killed. This Gallio should have, should have to appease the Jews like every other proconsul, should have said, You're right. Um, he's broken your, he's upset you guys. Okay, fine. You can have him do that. But Gallio doesn't do that. This is what he says, just as Paul was about to speak. Because Paul's about to speak, because he's like, here I go again. I'm going to make a defense for myself. It's me <laughs> against all these guys. As about, Paul's about to speak. Gallio interrupts him and says, this If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since uh, it involves questions and words and names that, in your law. Settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. And so it sounds like he's just washing his hands, but wait a second. The fact that he's not willing to appease this riot is different. It's different. But what's even more different is what happens next. What happens next in verse 16, it says, So he drove them off. Gallio drove the, Jews, the Jewish Riders off the religious leaders off. Then the crowd, not the Christians, the crowd, what, what was that? This was the city of Corinth, comes out because there's a big disturbance. We want to go see. We want to watch what's happening. The crowd that there's watching this disturbance this, this disturbance, there turns on Sothenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. I'm like, ho, oh, hold up. Previously,. Paul gets kicked out of a region. When Paul presented himself as Saul of Tarsus, the religious leader, kicked out of the region. Nobody there to defend him. And all of a sudden, in the very city that, that he goes, as Paul, uh, uh, you know, the Roman citizen, the tent maker, he changed his pulpit and the position of his pulpit. And the moment he did that, it was the community themselves that defended him. Watch this. The next verse. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Yeah, he did. He got kicked out of the region everywhere else. And when Paul stays in a place for some time, come on, this is, Paul moved with a different level of authority, the church I mean, three-quarters of our New Testament, in Paul's words, he had, he had authority over the church. When he stays in Corinth for, for a period of time, we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Like, he had an impact on this church for a reason. And the church was able to grow stronger there because Paul was able to stay. And the reason why Paul was able to stay is because all of a sudden, Paul began to learn. He was getting souls saved everywhere. But he began to learn. Lasting fruit happens if I change my approach, if I rethink, if I can deconstruct my upbringing of understanding that it, that, that religious things happen from the synagogue, if I can change the pulpit and, and realize that religious things don't just happen from the, from the synagogue, that if I can understand that God still moves with the same power and the same authority, if not more so when I move my pulpit to the marketplace... And when I can preach from here, when I, turn, when I change and rethink from thinking church, that all of my spiritual walk and all of my, all of my time with God is, is spent in my religious part of my life is in church. If I can change that thinking and realize that I am, no, no, no I'm part of the ecclesia, which is a gathering of citizens who take care of the concerns of their city when I understand that I'm an ecclesia and I can be a tent maker and I can make a contribution so great to that city that that city will defend me. I'm going to stay there. And it it gets better. It gets better. In Acts 19, Paul goes into Ephesus, which we get the book of Ephesians. On which we get the book of First and Second Timothy, because Timothy was the end up being the head pastor of of Ephesians. Look at what happens. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke briefly. So he he starts he, he does what his habit is to do. He enters the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. You don't say. I think Paul would learn this by now. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is the title they gave to Christians at the time. So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. You know what he said? He says, man, he, he changed pulpits again. He changed pulpits from the synagogue after three months of arguing persuasive the ear, and he's like, forget that. I'm going to go to the, the, the marketplace public hall, and I'm going to use this as my pulpit. He went to the university and he used it as his pulpit. And the result well, there's many people saved. And then guess what? The institution started a riot and they began to persecute Paul. And the same thing happens again. But now, what happens is the secular city clerk, you can read it, Acts 19, the secular city clerk of Ephesus comes to his defense. And Paul was able to stay a number of years because look at the next verse, and we read this verse last week. This went on for two years from this pulpit that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Not some, not most, all. Just all of Asia. <laughs> No Instagram, no YouTube, no airplanes, all, okay? When Paul began to rethink his identity and his approach, he saw different results. He went from being the religious leader in the synagogue to a marketplace contributor involved in the welfare of the city. He went from church to ecclesia. And upon leaving, he stayed for the rest of his ministry in Ephesus. And then at the end of his, his ministry, he felt that the Holy Spirit was calling him to go to Jerusalem. And he told them, you're never going to see me again. This is what he's telling them. And he knew that his journey, to, he felt really strongly that the Holy Spirit called him to Jerusalem. And he says, when I go there, I'm probably going to be arrested. I'm probably going to be killed. He had a reputation there. And, and they think he had a reputation everywhere at this point. And he says, I go there, I'm not coming back. He knew it. And so he makes the journey. But before he makes the journey, he, he gives a very impassionate speech to the leaders in Ephesus. And this is what he says: He tells them, he tells them, and you can read it yourself. He tells them, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, this kind of hard work, the verses before. He basically goes on to explain that, hey, I didn't ask you for any money. I didn't ask you for any support. I I supported myself. You saw me working as a tent maker. I supported myself, and I supported our disciples, the ones that I'd raised up. And also, apparently, he helped the weak. He says, I showed you by this kind of hard work, of working all through the day in my business and making this as my pulpit and doing all this. And he preached at night and did different things as well. He says, he says, but I also help the weak remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said "It is is more blessed to give than to receive. What's he saying? He's saying, church, he's saying, hey, Christians, we're not... The static institution, we're ecclesia. We're called to make an impact in the city so great that if you make an impact in the city, you saw it that the city clerk defended me because I was a contributor to the city. I made a difference. I had favor among the city. The Jews, the the religious static institution, they don't like that because they can't control me. They don't like that. They try to persecute me, but the city be the ecclesia help the weak it's more blessed to give than to receive if you do this if you change this your church will prosper this is ecclesia so now watch come on why am i why are we rethinking because listen it's been ingrained in me my entire life my whole christian walk that ministry is in the institution that if you're called to ministry it's the institution but what if we were to rethink what if we were to rethink and going if we're ecclesia if if wherever two or three are gathered two or three doesn't constitute a church does it if two or three are gathered that's not even a home group come on it's just two or three so what's the big deal Wherever two or three are gathered, there Jesus is in the midst of them. If we get this idea and saying, well, there's only two of us Christians at work, hmm. yeah. You know what you got? You got an ecclesia. What, what, what if we, there's only two Christians, there's only another Christian with me at school. Mm-hmm. What if we were to rethink the ministry and that, listen, what did Paul say hey, to the Ephesians? The Ephesians, what did Paul say? He said, the role of the pastor is not to do the ministry. The role of the pastor is to skill develop the saints to do the work of the ministry. My job, equip, is to skill develop you to use your pulpit. So starting next Sunday, I'm going to teach you how to not be a weird Christian. I'm gonna teach you as Jesus taught, Jesus taught his disciples not to be weird synagogue Jewish type people. He taught them how to actually make an impact in the in the community. And he taught them in order which to do this, and he taught them a way to do this. And I'm, I'm gonna equip you for your pulpit. Because all of a sudden, if we, if we go from just this being the pulpit, this platform, this right here, if we go from this being the pulpit, this is the only place the gospel can be preached, to all of a sudden we've got ecclesias, we've got ecclesias everywhere, and pulpits everywhere, we can transform. I believe if we can do that, we could see the fruit of all of Alberta has heard the gospel. All of Canada has heard the gospel. Are you called to ministry? Yes. Here's our takeaway. Every member, this is every member, a minister, every business, a pulpit, every gathering, a church. Every member, a minister. I don't know what to say. That's my job to help you. Every member, a minister, every business, a pulpit, every gathering, a church. And when the church becomes the ecclesia, everything changes. The group that comes to the building for weekly services is no longer just the sheep, but also the ministers. And the congregation no longer consists of only those who gather in the building, but also of the people in the city. That's our congregation. Come on. Man, when Paul got that, come on. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here confirming your word, that what is... What I've spoken is just, what is just of me, I pray that would be forgotten. But what is of you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd stir in each one of our hearts. Make a deposit there, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, I pray that we would do it your way, your timing, in Jesus' name, amen. If you're here this morning, you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. Probably, my guess is you resisted having a relationship with God because you didn't like the institution guess what <laughs> we don't either Jesus didn't and he never instructed to build institution Jesus wanted a relationship with you and becoming a follower of him doesn't mean that you have to be part of a church or part of religion it means you begin to have a relationship with him and that you get to be a minister too how cool is that Paul said this in Romans he said all you need to do to begin a relationship with Jesus is confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead and you will be saved and so we're going to do that right now I'm going to lead you in a prayer that confesses with your mouth that Jesus is God. And if you believe what you're praying right here, right now, is true, then right in this moment, you can begin relationship with him. Let's pray this together. Everyone that's watching online, pray with me wherever you're watching from. Let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God. And I believe you rose again from the dead. And I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my wrongs. For accepting me just as I am. I give my heart to you. In Jesus' name.